morning is our first Sunday of the new year. I'm glad to see you all. I hope you all had a good week so far. I guess my first question for you is this. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? Show of hands. Show of hands. All right. That's it? Really? I mean, you guys just didn't, didn't pull through? Not, not. Now, of those of you, go ahead and put your hands back up if you've made a New Year's resolution. How many of you have already failed at your New Year's resolution? Okay. Now, you can put your hands down if you didn't fail. It's all right. Okay. All right. Do you realize that 62% of all Americans make New Year's resolutions, and they generally have to do with one of four areas? The one of four areas is this, either self-improvement, which is getting organized, quit smoking, get a better job, things like that. Number two, weight-related, to get fit, stay fit, or eat better. Number three, money-related, to get out of debt, to get out of retirement, or get ready for retirement, not get out of retirement, that'd be a bad thing. Um, Or relationship-related, to fall in love, spend more time with family, or invest time in family. Now, those of you who said that you have already failed, you're not alone. Do you realize that 25% of people who make New Year's resolutions quit within the first week? 25% quit within the first week. Second week doesn't get much better because 5% more, so 30% quit in the first first two weeks. 40% quit by the end of January. Kind of a crazy thought. 40% by the end of January. Now, for a little bit of encouraging news for those of you who have made a New Year's resolution, 50% or almost 50% will stick through it for up to 60, uh, uh, six months. So that's not too bad of a deal. I mean, so if you haven't quit yet and don't quit by the end of January, you have a kind of a 50-50 chance of making it all the way through June. I hope you do. I hope you do. As a matter of fact, I think those that half of the 62%, so 32% of all Americans, they can keep their resolutions for, for six months. The question is how? How do they keep going? How do they not quit? How do they move forward? Because, you know, in all honesty, I think resolutions are a good thing. Goals are a good thing. But a lot of people do them for the wrong reasons. A lot of people do things uh, with the wrong motivation in mind. I think that's part of the reason why they fail. And, you know, as I read the stats, one thing that stood out to me was is God didn't actually really factor into many of those things. And all the resolutions, the top ten resolutions, rarely was it, I'm going to go to church more often, I'm going to read my Bible more often. Those weren't in the top tens. Now, honestly, these um, surveys aren't generally taken in churches, so that probably skews the, uh, the, the actual results in it all. But if it were... Would the results be different about failing and succeeding? Because is the church, the body of Christ, really that much different for those who attend than those who don't? Are the people in the church different than the people that are outside of the church? That's a question I want you to think about. And immediately we should say yes, but the reality is probably not. We're really not that much different. You know, I've heard people talk and I've read books about the root problem of what you might call apathy in the church. People have tried to figure out why church members are sporadic in their attendance, why they don't give, why they're absent in serving, and really when they even step outside the church building, why they are so much different than they are inside the church building. How does that happen? What is it that brings us to that place? And I can honestly tell you, I lay awake at night and wonder about these things. And it's not like I'm saying this to say, oh, I'm so great because I struggle in my own areas in doing these things. But I lay awake saying, what is it 
that keeps us from being so passionate about God that we are so that we have passion for other things? What is it that holds us back? Why is it that people call themselves Christians yet there is no anything in their life that would say it other than their mouth? Why is it that's that way? And I lay awake and I think about that, and I think about the people that, that come here, and I've seen the change. I mean, we've been doing this now for, for almost three years, and I've seen the change in people's lives and the way they're doing it, and then other people I haven't seen anything. And I'm not going to say, hey, that you're, you, you, and you, that's the one I'm talking about. But you know it. You know if you've seen change in your life. How do we make that change happen? Just like when we have a New Year's resolution to say, I want to see change in my life. That's why we do those. Why is it so many people fail? What is it that makes us look different than other people? Because we should be different. We have the hope of Jesus Christ in our life. We should be different than those who don't. That's what we talked about last week. God has breathed his life into us and has put flesh and blood and his spirit in us. He's taken us from those dry bones to what we are now, but we're not that different. Why? Why is it? And it eats at me there's so many people that call themselves Christians that... Like I said, it's only their mouth that shows. It's not their lifestyle. What is it that makes us so apathetic towards things in life, whether it be church things or our resolutions, and, and, and what makes us fail at those things? You know, in reading some of the stuff, a lot of people said there was two reasons why. 40% of people said the reason why they lost out on their New, New Year's resolution was because they just didn't have time to keep it, which is kind of an odd thing. Because we all have the same amount of time. We just choose to spend it how we choose to spend it. And the other thing was, is they just weren't that interested in the begin with, to begin with. I mean, it, it, thanks for being honest. That, that's kind of where we're at in all of it. And I, I think the answer of why we are apathetic towards things, why we don't put it all, is, is all right here. It's all in our heart. It's all in our heart. And as you know, we're starting this all-in series. And the first thing we're going to talk about is all my heart. Because that's where it all starts at. That's where passion comes from. That's where desire comes from. That's where everything comes from, is our heart. You know, back in February, uh, that Planet Fitness on Southern Boulevard opened up. And I was hesitant about going to it because I didn't want to be that guy that spent $10 a month but never ever went kind of thing. So I didn't really pull the trigger on doing it. And finally... Decided I would do it because I was going with, uh, with Mike Napier, who's another guy uh, who attends here and is part of the Baptist Convention. He's like, hey, we can be workout partners and kind of hold each other accountable. And so since February, I have been working out pretty regularly uh, throughout all of it. And it wasn't because I had a New Year's resolution that I waited a month to get started. It was because um, I lost a bunch of strength in 2011 and wanted to regain that strength and wanted to be able to, to, to get back to kind of where I was at and be able to do things. And so I started working out. And, you know, the reason why I'm still working out today is really there's, there's three of them. One, because I've seen a change in my life. I've seen, seen the change in who I am. I've, I've felt better about myself. I, I, I can see kind of a change in the mirror. Um, if, you, if you move kind of the, the fat over to the side this way and that way, you can see the change in the mirror. Um, and then there's also uh, a guy, like I said, Mike Napier, who goes with me, who holds me accountable. There's somebody there that is pushing me and pushing me to go harder because when the days that he's out of town and he's like, hey, yeah, just go ahead and go work out without me, I'm like, okay, 
back to sleep. You know, that, that's kind of the, the, the way it is. So there's that guy there, and then obviously there's also the way I feel afterwards. Not so much before or during, but afterwards. During the day, I feel like, man, I, I can accomplish so much more. My energy is higher. And, and in brief, to, to put it all in just a, a quick thing, I saw the results. I desired to grow stronger. I found a plan to grow stronger, and I had somebody hold me accountable to grow stronger. Then I stayed disciplined to do it. And I'm not saying that to brag on myself because every morning I wake up and it's 15 or less outside. I do not want to get in my car and go drive to the gym. I want to stay in my warm bed. I told you about that last week. And when my kids cry out, uh-uh, I'm not getting out of bed. I'm staying in there. They can figure out their own issues, that kind of thing. Um, that's the way I am even when I'm, I'm getting ready to go to the gym. But I know that there's somebody there to hold me accountable in it all. And I'm not sure if, if you're a gym person at all. But there's something about this time of year that's always fun. They're called newbies, okay? Some people just call them noobs for short, okay? Um, the, uh, they're the people that walk in, and they don't know what they're doing. And you can tell they're new because they weren't there just a couple of weeks ago. And you can also tell they're new because they're going to every machine trying to figure out how to use it. And, and you kind of laugh, and you kind of just watch and that thing. But the thing that really makes me stand out, or right, makes them stand out to me, is... They're all decked out in the new gear that they got, I guess, for Christmas, or they went out and said, hey, I'm going to make this serious this year, and I'm going to go all Under Armour out on you guys. At this point in time in their lives, they should not be wearing Under Armour, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, you're smiling. If you don't, just come visit the gym once. Um, the, maybe someday they can wear that Under Armour, but not quite yet. They're not quite to that point in their lives yet. And it's kind of funny that most of them, by February, aren't going to be there anymore. Most of them paid that $99 upfront fee. As a matter of fact, I've talked to people who actually own gyms, and they look forward to January and people paying the year fee because they know they'll get that money from them, and then they don't have to worry about them being there after February. I mean, they actually plan on that. Planet Fitness just started a program, $99 for the entire year. Why? Because they know that if they make you pay the $10 a month a month, they're not going to get $99 out of you. That's why. That's why they do it that way. And I was noticing something that kind of coincides that with that at church. Because a lot of people that say, hey, you know, we've got to get structure back into our lives. We've got to get church back into our kids' lives. We've got to do this this way. And there's two times they do it. One is in, in uh, January, and the other one is, is right at the beginning of school in September. And that's the two times they really say, hey, we've got to do this. We've got to push. We've got to get there. We've got to reach out and, and, and get to church. We've got to get ourselves out of bed on Sunday mornings. You know what the actual lowest attended month of the year is for churches across the board? February. Except for Ash Wednesday, which sometimes falls in February, sometimes doesn't. February is the lowest attended month of the year. Why is that? After that big push to get into church and get everything going, why don't people come to church? Why aren't people involved? Why are Christians as flaky as croissant rolls? But why is that? What is it about us? What is it about Christians? And I really, truly believe it starts in the heart. I really, truly believe that. It's because Christ has not penetrated people's hearts. They have not allowed God into their lives. They want to invite Him to part of their life that Christian church sliver that's here and the rest of the pie is filled with other things but God wants it all 
And that is what we're here to talk about today. That is what we're going to talk about for the next five weeks. That is what we're going to talk about every Sunday for the rest of our church's existence. That God wants our all. He wants everything. You know, it's just like any other relationship. You have a desire to be in a relationship. You have a plan to be in a relationship. And you're disciplined within that relationship. God wants a relationship with you. If you are going to be in a wedding relationship, you're not only going to give some. You're going to give all. In many ways, I believe this message this morning will be the most important message I've ever preached. And probably ever will preach. It has hit me this week as I've worked through it, as I've gone through it, as I've struggled whether to say certain things or not to, because I'm afraid about hurting somebody's feelings. But then I read a, a tweet this week from a, from a guy that I, that's a pastor back east, and I just love to listen to him, but he said this. He said, who is it more important to, to not offend people or to not offend God? And I said, okay, that's it. We've got to say it. We've got to talk about that God wants our all. And sometimes, and a lot of times, we fail at that. The point I want everyone to grasp this morning is this. We need to move beyond our head knowledge to a heart knowledge. Because a lot of people in here know all about God. A lot of people in here know all about church. A lot of people in here know all about what you're supposed to do when you walk in the church doors, unless it's a cafeteria, and then it kind of throws you off just a little bit. But we know the ways that it's supposed to happen, but is that what God wants? Because I'm convinced there's a lot of people in the church right here today, in churches all around the country, that believe the right things, and they think that makes them okay with God. They believe the right things. They understand the little details. They understand all the intricacies that go on in church. They understand that they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They believe that. And you know what? That belief matters, but it's so much more than that. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that it's okay to believe that we should be. In 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, Keep a close watch on how you live and how you're teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. What we believe in our head matters, but it has to go from here to here. It has to go from our head to our heart. It cannot stay right here. We have to not only believe it, we have to act it out. We have to put it into action. As a matter of fact, Jesus had some kind of, uh, I don't know, adversaries in the Bible. Some guys that were always giving him a little counterpunch everywhere he went. They were called Pharisees. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. Pharisees didn't like Jesus because he made the gospel relevant and understandable to the masses. He made it relevant to people who didn't understand it. These guys, not so much. But Jesus wasn't terribly fond of them either. The problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees wasn't because they knew so much. As a matter of fact, that was a good thing about him. It wasn't their set of beliefs. They had head knowledge about God. They knew the Bible better than any of us do. They could quote scripture better than many of their own day, and yet Jesus still had a problem with them. He had a problem with them. What more did he want from them? Put a pin in that one, and let's move on to the next thing. There are many people in church that think if they do certain things, if they do certain things, not just believe, but if they do certain things, they'll be okay with God. They'll be in the right line with God. There are many that assume because they attend church, because they give tithes and offerings, and they read their Bible every now and then that they're saved. I want to tell you right now, it's not by what we do that saves us. It is not by what we do that saves us. Doing the right things does not make us saved. I do believe there are certain things that Christians should do, but not out of guilt, but because of out of love in response to what God has done for us already. The Bible tells us that we're not saved by any good deeds we do, no matter how we do them. Look at Matthew 7. 
chapter, 20, chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Look at all the things we did, God. Then I will tell them plainly. This is Jesus talking. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They thought they were saved because of the things they did. But Jesus' response was, go away, you evildoers. Leave me alone. But God, isn't that a little harsh? I mean, look at all the great things they did. Look at all the nursery kids they changed diapers for. Look at, look at the things that I'm doing. But he says, away from me, you evildoers. Back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees also did a lot of good things. They prayed regularly. They fasted. Some of us don't even, in here don't even know what fasting is, but these guys, they fasted. They, more than the law required, they gave sacrifici- uh, sacrificially. They attended worship services. They, they observed the holy days and the feast days. They did everything they needed to do, but Jesus still had a problem with them. What more did he want from them? Then, there's those in the church that believe that they don't do certain things. That's what gets them saved. So we have the people that believe. We have people that think that as long as I do. And then we have people that say, as long as I don't do. I mean, I don't cuss. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't, I don't do any of those things. I should be just fine. Right? I mean, my whole life, I've had one sip of red wine. And that's because my aunt slipped it to me under the table when I was 17. I, I, I've had... No cigarettes. I've never done drugs. I've never done anything. I should be just fine, right? No, no, no. It's not about what we don't do. Because if we go back to the Pharisees again, they avoided certain things. And I believe Christians should avoid certain things. But they passionately avoided food and other things that would make them unclean. They lived to the letter of the law and punished anyone who didn't. They were on top of their game, yet Jesus still had a problem with them. What was it that he wanted from them? You know what Jesus wanted? He wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts. It's simple. It's easy. Jesus wanted their hearts. They had a head knowledge of God. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Jesus even told them that. Your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from God. Simply put, Jesus cares about what we believe. Jesus cares about what we do. Jesus cares about what we don't do. But he cares most about our hearts. He cares most about all of our hearts. And I'm convinced that most of the problem in churches, most of the problems that we see, most of the fighting that takes place, most of the times that people have these huge disagreements, it really boils down to this very fact. That is, is that we have a lot of people who haven't let God change them. We have a lot of people who are unchanged in the church. If you ever look at our slogan, come as you are, be changed, go change the world. We don't want you to stay as you are, and so many people do. They just add those things that we believe or don't do or do and forget that God wants to change our hearts. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, which will be our, our basically our passage uh, throughout All of what we're doing. Now, it's also found in Deuteronomy 6. It's also found in the book of Mark. It's also found in the book of Luke. But we're going to kind of jump between each one of them. Matthew chapter 22, those same Pharisees. Those same Pharisees that had all the right things going on were in a bit of a discussion with Jesus about resurrection. Talking about how people aren't resurrected. Jesus is talking about resurrection from the dead. People are like, wait, wait, no, what's going on here? So they want to trick Jesus. 
They want to put him in a place that makes him look bad in front of people. Now, I'm not sure about you, but you can't trick God because he already knows that you're coming at him. So he already has the answer ready to go. And this is what they say. They find an expert in the law. Because they know this expert in the law is going to be able to maybe throw out a question that will put him in a, in a bind. And it says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Hoping that he would trap himself with his answer. And Jesus replied this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, all the law and the prophet, of the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the reasons we do what we should do is because we love God with all. All our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and some of the other versions say all our strength. Everything that we have, all. And all the other things, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we do these things, everything else falls in place. They were stumped. They're like, wait a second, we we're supposed to stump you, and now you've stumped us with that answer. All the reasons God asks for all. It starts in the heart, and that's why I believe Jesus mentioned it first when he said, all your heart. It starts there. It starts with our heart because that is the core of our passion, that is the core of our desire, that is the core of our dis discipline. In the last few weeks, I've done a handful of weddings. As a matter of fact, next week I get to do one in Phoenix, and I'm really excited because somebody called me and told me, hey, you might want to bring a jacket because it's getting like in the 50s at night. Woohoo! You know, that's what I'm thinking. The whole thing is, when I do a wedding, and we're doing vows, and I'm saying, okay, do you blank, take blank, to be your lawfully wedded husband? For richer or poorer, right? And in sickness and in health. You know, there's all those things. I don't ever remember ever saying, in, when you're kind of rich, in, you know, only when you're kind of poor. But when you get really poor, it's okay to bail out. You know? uh, and, and in sickness, as long as he's not deathly sick, you can stick around with him. But in health, you, know, you can stick around if you want to. It, it, there's never that, eh, there's none of that. It's always an all. You're going in with all your heart into a relationship like that. That is what a wedding is about. That is what a marriage is about, about giving your all. Well, that is exactly what Jesus expects from us, our all, as we connect with him, as we get into him. They're not just basic vows. They are a commitment, a lifetime commitment, and it's all our heart, all our heart. The heart reflects the person. How we go in with our heart reflects who we really are. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 20, uh, 27, 19 says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. We can know somebody's passion by looking at their life. Honestly, your lifestyle can tell us a lot. Where you invest your time, where you invest your money, where you invest your energy, that will tell you and tell us where your passions are at. Where you are putting in, where are you going into everything. As a matter of fact, Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure, the things we treasure, our time, our money, our energy, that is where our hearts will be. It's pretty plain, pretty simple. Jesus says it. If we are invested in something, we will be connected to something. 
whether it's investing our time, our money, and our energy, or our energy, will be connected in that place. I was talking to a guy this week, and he was telling me about a 69 vet that he bought eight years ago. I asked him what he was doing over Christmas break, and he said he was putting a lot of the finishing touches on, on his 69 vet that he has. And he was showing me pictures. It's pretty sweet. I mean, it, it's looking good. Eight years he's invested. Hundreds and hundreds of man hours of sanding the fiberglass and all the things to make it the, exactly the way it needs to be. You know how much money he has invested in a 69 vet? Over $100,000. He has a $24,000 engine in the thing by itself. Not, not all the other jazz that goes into it. $100,000. They stripped it down to the very core. They powder frames the cone. The uh, uh, powder coated the frame and all the things that were necessary. And he wants to make it the sweetest ride possible. He's like, I'm hoping to be driving it by spring. I only have about 20 grand more to invest in it. I went $120,000 in a 69 Corvette. Now they're doing a, a, a um, I can't remember the words exactly, a mod restore, which means it's all modified to the fact that everything is brand new and it's got air cushions, you know, suspension on it and it's going to have a navigation system. So it's not going to be like a 69 vet out of the store. But 120, you could buy a ZR1, the top of the line Corvette, right now brand new for 100 grand. And this is what he's invested in it. And he's hoping to drive it by spring. And I can guarantee you in March, I can guarantee you, that when he pulls up in that and I see it and I'm like, hey, why don't you give me the keys and let me take it for a spin? I can guarantee you that if he even decides to let go of those keys to anybody, I'm not going to be the first person he lets go of them to. And if he did, he's going to ride in the passenger seat. Now, take it easy. Don't worry. Now, you gotta, don't, don't touch that way. Hang on. This is, he's going to be, he's invested. And he is committed. And he is connected with that car. Where we invest our time, our money, and our energy is where we will be connected. That is we, where we know our passions are at. That's how I found out he's a passionate car guy. It's because that is where he spent more. Well, I'm not even going to get into it. That's a lot of money. Okay, that's just a lot of money on a little car. No matter how sweet it is, if we're invested financially, if our resources are in it, if we're, the things that we've been given by God, the stewardship that we have, if wherever we put that, that is where our passion's at. So my question for you today is, is where is your all going? Where is your passion? Where is your time? Where is your energy? Where is your money going? Where are you passionate about? Because if we're not emotionally connected to Jesus or his church, we're not going to invest in him. We're not going to invest in the things that he has called us to invest in into the children, about when he calls us to teach, when, into the people that are our next-door neighbors that he calls us to reach. If we are not invested in Jesus, we are not going to be invested in committing to what he has called us to do. It all starts in the heart. And I believe he doesn't have our heart because he doesn't have our wallet. He doesn't have our watch. He doesn't have our eyes. He doesn't have our gut. He doesn't have any of those things. He doesn't have it. And that's why he doesn't have our heart, because everything is going everywhere else. God wants your heart and he wants all of it. My question to you is, does your, life, does your life reflect it? Where is your treasure? Where is your money? Where is your time? Where is it going? Because Jesus makes it very, clean, very, very plain just a few verses later after Matthew 6, 21, when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes into Matthew 6, cha uh, chapter 6, verse 24, and he says this, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, he could have said both God and treasure. He could have said both God and time. He could have said both God and a 69 Corvette. But he said both God and money. Because he knows where your money goes, where your money is going. If, if, if that's what you're all about, you're not going to be concerned with God. If you're only worried about the money or the treasure or the things or this stuff, you're not going to be invested in him. Your heart can't be split between A and B. It's a one or the other kind of deal. I guess the best way to describe it is this way. It was very sweet last night for the Packers beat the Vikings. Okay. Just going to let you know that. Because the Vikings are a terrible football team. As are the Bears and as are the Lions. And if you have a favorite team, I bet you know the teams that are in your division are your most bitter rivals. And that's the last person you want to lose to going into the playoffs. That's the last person. If you're a Cowboys fan, I can't imagine the pain you felt last week watching the Redskins win and play tonight and your team isn't. And I'm not saying that to rub it in. I'm just saying, ouch. Because there is a bitterness between the Redskins and the Cowboys, just like there's a bitterness between the Packers and the Bears and the Packers and the Vikings. You can't be a fan of both. And if you are, you're not a fan. Let me just tell you that right now, people. This is what I'm yelling and preaching when I'm talking about football, all right? That's what it's about. You cannot be a fan of both, and if you are, you're not really a fan. You just got, you know, I, I love when I talk. You know, I just really like their uniforms. It's, it's so pretty, and, you know, I really don't. If, I mean, the Vikings, if they would have won, they wore purple, so it's. No, you're not a fan. You're either a Packer fan or you're not. That's the way it is. And you go up to, I've been to Green Bay twice, and I got to watch games there. And you know what? They fight up there. They are mean up there. If you're a Bears fan up there, you better cover yourself as you're walking out of that building. I will tell you that right now. They do not like it. And that's the way God wants it. He wants you to be a fan of him or not. You can't be a fan of both God and money. Jesus says it himself. God wants your whole heart. And what he says, he asks us, does our life reflect it? Because we can say it. We can say, yeah, God, you got my whole heart. You got my everything. But does our life really reflect it? Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, when it talks about what our, our life reflects. Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, who is your life? When Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. So put to death, death, that's a pretty heavy-duty word. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, or lust. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do used to not currently you used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world but now is a time now not later not on new year's not now is a time to get rid of anger rage malice behavior slander and dirty language don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature stripped off means to tear it away and now and all of its wicked deeds put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and what? Become like him. Be changed like him. Give him all of your heart. There's an idea here that repeats itself over and over that you were different from what you used to be because now Christ is in your life. I need you to understand something this morning. 
there's two points I want to bring to you. First one is this. Our change, this heart change, can only come from God. We can work on the outside. We can do nice things. There are people that do not know Jesus that do a lot, a lot of nice things. But our heart change can only come from God. I've seen evidence of it in my own life. And if you read the Bible, you'll see evidences of many, many people in their lives. As a matter of fact, our Acts devotional that we're going to be going through, the 28 days straight, you're going to read about a guy by the name of Paul and the life change that he went from. He went from hating, hating Christians to the point of killing them or having them killed to the point of trying to conform people and transform people into being Christians. That's quite a life change. As much as you'd want to say he did that on his own, people all around him knew that that was not the case. Knew that something had to have happened, and that is the fact that something is God. And God came in, and he changed him from the inside. Because when you read that book of Acts this week, you will see that when Paul's life changed, when he became a new man, was what happened first. He came face to face with who? Jesus. Face to face with Jesus, right there on the road to Damascus, to the point of he being blinded and having to, to go through that, that few days of being blinded and understanding who God is and the power of God. So when he met Jesus, that is when he changed. God does a changing. We can change our actions, but God changes our heart. And the second thing is, is when that change takes place, when that change starts to happen, it's not going to happen overnight just like that. But when it does happen, it should be total and it should be complete. We should be willing to give our all. How many of you guys like to camp? Anybody in here? I, I have a, a confession to make, okay? My son is 11 years old. I have another son that is six, a daughter that is four, and a wife who have all never been camping. Never. I went camping all the time as a little kid. I went hunting. You know, we stayed out in the tents and had to walk down to the, walk down to the stream to get water out. We had to, you know, find wood to build a fire. All of that, that's what we had to do. That's, and I've never made my kids have to do that before. My wife doesn't either. I mean, that's not something that's been a part of our routine. Now, there's some of you in here that went, camping? What do you mean walking down to the stream to get water? What do you mean you have to actually collect wood? We just take the motor home and put the satellite dish up, and, and uh, we got water inside. We turn on the faucet. We flush the toilet. We do that kind of stuff. That's right. See, there's, a, there's an idea that, that camping is, is the same as taking your motor home and parking in an RV parking lot. That if you've really been camping before, you understand there's some sacrifice involved when it comes to camping, like comfort and warmth and things like that. That is stuff that gets sacrificed. I mean, camping in a motorhome sounds great. It, it, and watching TV while camping, that even sounds better because I remember how bored we used to get and just hitting each other with sticks, playing pinecone baseball. You know, you had to find something to do. But there's sacrifice that's involved. And I think, I think when it comes to the idea of Christianity, we take this idea that there's a motorhome Christianity. Versus a actual sacrificial Christianity. There's this idea we can take all the stuff of the world that we've had in our whole lives. We can take it with us. And, and the Christianity part is just a benefit. It's getting to say, hey, yeah, we got out into nature kind of thinking. We take this idea that all the things that Jesus offered is great. And that salvation that Jesus offered, yeah, of course we want that. Nobody wants to go to hell. 
We take that and we say, that, that's what we want, but I want to keep all the other stuff with me. There's a sacrificial part of Christianity that I think some people miss. We should be changed completely. We want to stay comfortable in the world, not really changing anything, but have the safety of saying that we're Christians. In John chapter 9, we read a story about Jesus healing a, a, a blind man. And the blind man goes to the people after he's been healed, and, and nobody truly knows who he is. Some people say, well, this is a totally different guy. No, this can't be the same guy that's been blind. There's no way this could possibly happen. And an argument actually breaks out. And, and the thing is that happened here is he is standing in front of them trying to tell them who he is and saying, I have been changed. So much so that people don't even recognize me. So much so that, that, that I can see. And it's amazing that maybe you've heard this song before. It, it's called Amazing Grace. But it was, it, it, there's a line that says, I once was blind, but now I see. See, there's this, there's this correlation between this, this passage here and, and Christianity, from being meeting with Jesus and being blind spiritually to having our eyes opened and being changed and completely different to the point that people don't really believe that that's who we are. Well, no, I knew the old Jew. How could you possibly be like this? Well, I've met Jesus. That's how it happened. That's how I got to where I'm at. And, and it starts right here. As Christians, we should be so different that people realize that we're not the same. But how many people claim to be Christians that are the same as they've been their whole lives? Change takes place in our lives, should be total and complete, and it should change every aspect of our lives. And it really, honestly starts right here in our heart. It's sad, if not tragic, to think the world can barely see the difference between Christians and non-Christians. It really is. People should be able to tell that we're different that we're set apart, that people should be able to see the way we talk is different, the way we act is different, the way we respond to situations is different, the way that we act overall, the things we choose to do and not to do, how we treat people. I often wonder, and Jerome and I were talking about this this week, why would anybody want to be a Christian? Why? Why? I mean, football season's almost over, so you're not going to miss football there on out. But, you know, when you have to get up and go to church, you miss the kind of beginning of the first game. The music, you can find better concerts. And that's not a slam on Jerome. Jerome and I were talking about that this week. You can find better teaching, for sure. You can go anywhere and be entertained better. So why is it that people want to be a Christian? What is it? They would make them say, yeah, I want to give up the things of this world to follow a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. What, what is it? And it's that connection with Jesus that changes us. And that is what people want because there is hope that is found in Jesus Christ that is not found anywhere else. It's not the wow of a Sunday morning. It's not the fact that it's so amazing inside Cleveland's cafeteria. That's not what draws people in here. What draws people in is the fact that Jesus has changed lives and they can see it in me and they can see it in you and when they see that, they want to have it in their own lives. That is what it is about. The problem is I don't think we can sell something that we don't believe in. You may have heard a saying before, you can never convince someone of something that you yourself aren't convinced of. So how can we convince people about Jesus if we're not fully convinced that he can change our lives and he is changing our lives? I guess... It kind of goes back to that gym thing. 
Why would we go through the pain and the hurt and the getting up early and the sweatiness and all those things just for the heck of it? Why would you do that? You see an end result, and that's the reason why you do it. Same thing with cutting back on your finances when you're saying, hey, I want to get out of debt, but why do you want to get out of debt when it's so nice to be, uh, you know, lavished with stuff? Well, you see the end result of it. You see the freedom that comes with it. So each of those things, it's the same thing. What will it take for us to be convinced enough to understand the change that God has in us to be changed completely? Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. I firmly believe that's what God's called us to do. But in order for us to go change the world, we have to be changed first. We have to be changed first. We have to be the change that we want to see in the world. We have to be the change, and it has to start in our hearts. I am dead serious about going all in this year. To the point of crazy weirdness of, hey, all the chips to the center of the table for you poker players, we're just going to push it all in there, and you know what? We're going to bank on God and know that he's going to bless because of it. And it's got to start sometime, and it's got to start somewhere. So my question to you is this. Why not here? Why not now? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not to offer your arms, not to offer your fingers, but to offer your entire, your all, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. At the end of every service when I was growing up, we always had one of those come forward invitation songs. And the organ would start playing, and it would be like, I surrender all, you know, that. And it would be the older lady with a warbly voice, and you'd be like, what is going on? And as you're, you're thinking about that song, you're like, I surrender all. All to him do I surrender. All to Jesus I freely give. Anybody in here sing that song? Remember singing that song at some point in time growing up? Okay, quite a few of you. You remember that? You grew up in church, and you had kind of the, that same thing. How many of you actually meant it? I don't, I don't want you to raise your hands. But when we say that, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. That means I'm not holding it. I'm not like, hey, you know, God, I'm just going to kind of have a little tug of war with you. All to him I freely give. I asked Jerome, I said, we were talking about this week. I said, you know what you should do? You should come up and play for me. And at the end, be like, some to Jesus I surrender. Some to him I freely give. You know, what, wouldn't that be a little bit more appropriate? But in our lives, I think that's where we're at. And I'm a terrible singer, so I apologize for that. Um, the idea of just giving all is such a foreign concept. Because we want to hold on to it. We want to have that motorhome Christianity where we take all of our stuff with us instead of sacrificing and really, truly giving all. I want to challenge you today, and I'm going to challenge you every Sunday, probably for the rest of Paragon's life, as long as I'm here, that we need to give all to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful that, God, you gave all in your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be, ha be able to have a relationship with you. That, God, that you gave everything so that we could be able to connect with you. And God, yet in return, we only give some so often, too often, way too often. 
And I pray for every person in this building, especially myself, God, that we can give all. That we can go all in with all our hearts today, God. God, take our heart and make it yours. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. We sang the song already, Lord, reign in me, reign in your power. Take all I am. God, please don't let those be empty words coming from us. But Lord, let there be a prayer that we reach out and say, God, yes, please take our all. Pray this in your name this morning, Lord. Amen. I'm not sure if you've ever given your all to Jesus before. If you've ever said, yes, God, I understand that you sent your son. I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me. As a matter of fact, I have patterned my lifestyle to do things and not to do things around that. But I have never actually given my life to Jesus. I've never said, yes, I accept you and I want to make you Lord, which makes me the slave. I want to make you the Lord of my life. If that is you, I'm going to step back to the back and I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you about giving your all, giving your life to Jesus to be that living sacrifice. I'm going to step back to the back while we sing this song.